All right, would you take your Bible? Let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for the good of my neighbor and the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're beginning in verse 23. We're going to read. The section actually moves to 11.1. This is where chapter breaks are not always precise. I would argue that 11.1 is to be included in this section, as I think you'll see in a moment. Let's read the passage together. For the good of my neighbor and the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, All things are lawful, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you, 27, and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's, for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. May the Lord write his word on our hearts. Pray with me, if you would. Father, thank you so much for the, all the precious people who have entered into this place on this Lord's Day. We want to honor you. We thank you for your living word. We thank you that we're alive in Jesus, those of us who know you and those who don't. I pray that today would be their day. Thank you that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Thank you for just the power of your resurrection in our lives and the fellowship that we enjoy with the saints of God. Lord, we need your touch because we see the struggle in ourselves and in this world. Just wanting to do the right thing, finding another law, as Paul said in Romans 7, in my members that the thing I want to do, I often don't do. The thing I, I hate, I often find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then Paul says, thanks be to God, because we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to pursue that relationship with him, Lord. We know that in our own strength, we can do nothing. In our flesh, we can do nothing. So would you show us the way through this text, the practical application, the understanding of the Word of God, so that we can live it out and bring you glory, I pray, in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, the good of my neighbor is connected directly to the glory of God. The two are inseparable. The reason that we want to do good to our neighbor is because we've experienced the glory of God. Now, what I'd like to show you is a passage in the book of Exodus. If you turn back to Exodus chapter 32, Genesis and then Exodus. So the second book of the Bible, 
We know that as we've been studying 1 Corinthians 10 specifically, Paul has gone back to the wilderness wanderings for illustrations to warn the Corinthian church, and I would argue the church here in Corona, about how we're to live and how we're not to repeat the same mistakes that Israel made specifically in the wilderness wanderings. Exodus uh, 32, uh, actually go back for a moment, 31 says, 31.18, it says, When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, 31.18 of Exodus, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. Now, we've touched on Exodus 32, that the people, when Moses was not returning quickly, they said, what's happened to him? We don't know. We know they made, the golden calf was made by Aaron with their jewelry, and we know what happened, right? They, de they descended into idolatry and debauchery and all of that, and that was, a, that was a sad time for Israel. In Exodus 33, uh, Moses is interacting with God and here's what it says. This is uh, 13 of Exodus 33. Now, therefore, I pray you, Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, speaking to God, 33, 13 of Exodus, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is, is it not by your going with us, your presence, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Your glory is what distinguishes us, is what he's saying, your presence. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said famously, I pray, I pray you, show me your glory. I can't help but think of the song by Third Day. <laughs> show me your glory. <laughs> Send down your presence. I want to see your face. That's the heart of Moses. Show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. And you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about when, while my glory is passing by. That I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, I can't tell you that I understand all the dynamics of this, but it is shared in human language so we can get the picture that Moses just deeply desired to see the glory of God. The more I live on this planet, the more I look at the world, the more I look inside my own dark heart at times, that's my passionate cry, oh Lord, show me your glory. Send down your presence, because with you, life makes sense. Now, 
Remember that in this setting, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses and the people of God broke the commandments. And if you think about the essence of the law, this is where I want to just put before you this thought that the glory of God and the good of my neighbor intersect. It's because the law comes from the very heart of God. So when Jesus was asked about what's the great commandment of the law, Jesus said, the great commandment of the law is you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. This is Matthew 22, 36 through 40. The second is like it. You shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. So the glory of God is directly connected to the good of my neighbor because the law is about bringing glory to God, having no other gods before him, right? For several commandments. And then the rest of the law, really in the Ten Commandments, is about the good of my neighbor. Scholars like to talk about the intrinsic glory of God, that God has glory in and of, of, of himself. Uh, whether or not we give him glory, he is glorious. That's who he is. It's his very nature. He has intrinsic glory. But another thing that we can do as people is ascribe glory to the Lord. And one of the ways that we ascribe glory to the Lord or we give him glory is by our worship. And our worship is much more than a song. Amen. Our worship is about our lives. Our worship is about our conduct. Our worship is about loving one another as he has loved us. And I would submit to you that when you're experiencing the glory of God, that's when the good of your neighbor is going to be uppermost in your mind and heart. Now Moses kind of stood out, um, out among this group. He was spending time with the Lord, and it seems like Moses was the exception to everybody else. Even his own brother Aaron got caught up in the idolatry. Why was Moses different than the people? Well, Moses was certainly a man like everybody else, and Moses would fail, we know, uh, at one point in his life, and that's why he didn't go into the promised land. He wasn't a perfect man, but I would submit to you that the more time you spend in the glory of God, in the presence of God, if you will, the more you're going to have the desire to do good to your neighbor. Amen? They're, they intersect. They go together. The very law comes from God. And when God is working in your life, turn all the way over to Colossians chapter 1, you're going to notice that you're going to desire to do the law of God because the law of God is going to be deep in your heart. Now, we know the Holy Spirit certainly lives in us, but it's as a believer, we all know that we can still walk in the flesh and not in the Spirit. So take a look at this Colossians 1. Paul's talking about the mystery that was hidden from past generations. 1.26 now has been manifested to his saints. This is Colossians 1.27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory, Colossians 1.27, of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, note it, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him admonishing every man, 128, and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we, says Paul, may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Flip over to Colossians 3 and look at verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Think of Moses. Think of the the mountain, think of his desire to see the presence of God. This specifically where Christ is seated at the right hand of God there in heaven. 
Set your mind, here's the key to Christian living, set your mind, Colossians 3, 2, on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Set it on the glory of God, the ways of God, the person of God, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him, here's our word again, in glory. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The, the word glory is doxa in Greek, back to 1 Corinthians 10, and it is kavod or kavod in Hebrew. In the ancient world, when they wanted to measure the value of something, they did it often by weight. And so the word doxa and the word kavod has this idea of that which is weighty. So when we talk about the glory of God, one way to think about the glory of God, one way to think about the concept of glory is to think about weightiness. Like if we were talking with our friends about a deep subject, and may, this may be a bit passe, maybe it's something we used to say in the past, but we would say to one another, wow, even at a Bible study, that's heavy, man. Anybody? Right? That's my best Raul Reese impression right there. It's heavy, man. It's heavy in my chevy, man. Anyway. <laughs> what do we mean by that? We mean that we're talking about something substantive, something meaty, something weighty. That's the word glory. Now, here's the application for you. Glory has to do with whatever you put value to, whatever you put weight to in your life. That's what you end up glorifying. Whatever you put great value, honor, weight that is what you are glorifying in your life, or that is the one whom you are glorifying. If you put great weight in worshiping the Lord, following Him, reading His Word, praising Him, serving Him, then you are putting weight or glory where it belongs. God says, I will not give my glory to another. I won't do it, and I don't want you to do it either. That's why idols are such a big deal as we've studied chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians were giving their weight, their honor, their value, their time, etc., to things that don't really matter. In fact, things that could even potentially be destructive and demonic. And Paul said, don't do that. Because that very behavior will affect your behavior to other people. It will affect your decision making. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that your vertical relationship with God, that is you glorifying him vertically, will affect the horizontal because God's very person is what breathes out the law. God's glory connects to the goodness to my neighbor. That's what Paul's been talking about. And so oftentimes if we look at something that's gone south in our lives, something that's amiss, something that's wrong with our marriage, our relationships, our own walk with Jesus, compromise, etc., it's because we've taken our eyes off of him. We've taken our eyes off of the glory. Now we can have our reasons. Israel certainly did. We don't get it. Where is Moses? What's going on? We all can make our list. But as we focus on the glory of God, everything else will fall into place. You see... One of the most important things that we can do in our lives is pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ, and the rest of life will take care of itself. Amen? But that's where we struggle. In this crazy world where so much comes at us. Now, we'll see how far we can get, because that was all introduction. Are you ready? 
1 Corinthians 10, 23. Now, this appeared to be a slogan. Some scholars believe it even came from Paul and it was either misapplied or maybe somewhat distorted by the Corinthians to excuse their behavior. But here's what it says. All things, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, are lawful. The Greek word existen is translated permissible in the NIV. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Paul may be correcting there, all things are lawful with the second part. Not all things edify. So, if you look at all things are lawful, we certainly have to understand in verse 23 that Paul, if he is quoting them, and we saw the same quotation in chapter 6, he is, he is certainly correcting them. And here's something we need to think about. All things, frankly, are not lawful. Right? We were just talking about the Ten Commandments. Amen? All things are not lawful. Paul is talking about things that may not be specifically mentioned in Scripture. I want to make this point so it is crystal clear, especially in our modern culture. Anything in the Bible that's already been talked about that is not lawful or not permissible, you don't have to pray about. You don't have to seek counsel on. If the Word of God says don't do that, then don't do that. You don't need more information. It's already there. Paul's not talking about things that have already been clearly articulated as unlawful in the Bible. That, there's no guesswork there. He's talking about things in the Christian life that are not necessarily stated in Scripture. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of applications. The Corinthians had written him a letter, as we studied earlier, and they had a list of questions about marriage and all these different things. So they had their list of questions. That's part of the reason that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. But how about things that we don't necessarily have a clear Bible verse on? Some of us wonder about those kinds of things. Well, what if we embrace this idea that, of grace that Paul had brought to these cities and had discovered for himself that it's not about legalism. And let's just paint a, a quick picture. In the church, usually there are two extremes. They are legalism and license. Legalism is that there are people that are, get so caught up in rules, could be the rules of their church, the rules of their family, the rules of their group. They're, those rules may not be scripture, but they've box themselves in with those rules. And sometimes what's happened in the evangelical church is that we've had rules that weren't really from the Word of God at all. And then we've had the legalists on our back, breathing down our neck, to tell us to keep rules that are not even in the Bible. And that's a legalist. A legalist sometimes, as I heard another pastor say recently, sometimes you have to wonder if you can laugh around them. Because they walk around with a smug look on their face and everything seems to be wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Don't. Did you crack a smile in here? That's wrong. <laughs> right? That's a legalist. That's a pharisaical attitude. Jesus addressed the Pharisees because they had added to the law of God. He wasn't rebuking them for the law. He was rebuking them for all the weight they had put on the people. And he said, the things that you put on the people, you don't even do it. And you put it on the people. And you don't do it because I know your hearts. Ooh, it's inconvenient. Yes, God even knows your heart. You can fool other people, but you can't fool him. And legalists typically are miserable people. 
because they walk around keeping rules that not even God. <laughs> they, they've added commandments to the top ten that are not even in God's list, right? We've got to be careful there. And then the opposite side is those who practice license. And license means I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it. And if a Bible verse cramps my lifestyle, we'll find a way to get out of that. And you say, well, how do they find a way to get out of that? Well, they re-explain it. They say, oh, that, that verse was a cultural thing. Now, there are some verses that are cultural. We'll get into this a little bit in chapter 11. But some of the issues in our day have nothing to do with culture because they go back to orders of creation. God's plan for marriage and sexuality and so forth. And what's happening in our culture is people who are claiming to be Christians are trying to find ways out of clear Bible verses because it doesn't fit with either the culture or their own personal choices. And that's license. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to find a way to do what I want even though the Bible may say that that's wrong. Those are the extremes. Now, in the middle could be this idea of liberty. If you're a note-taker, three L's. There's license, legalism, and in the middle, let's call it liberty. Now, each of us as Christians, we have certain liberties in Jesus Christ, right? And those liberties can include a whole host of things. Music we listen to, movies we watch, our diet, how, how we dress, where we live, where we work. There's things that are liberties. Some things are neutral. Other things are m much more important because of their impact. And so in the category of liberty, let's, let's walk that out. If that's what Paul is addressing in verse 23, that all things are lawful in terms of my Christian liberty, then the second part makes sense, doesn't it? But not all things are what? They're not all profitable. You could say all things are permissible, NIV, but not all things are profitable. As a Christian, when I'm navigating my life and I'm trying to decide how I'm going to live every day, where I'm going to invest my time, dot, 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 now I have to ask some questions about my own personal application of my Christian life. And I would say to you that all of us are certainly walking this out and it's, there's some experience that goes with it, right? Now, I've been a Christian for 30 years now, over 30 years, and so that has changed and morphed. The more I've gotten to know God, the more I've gotten to know His Word, the more I've needed to make decisions, but I have to ask, what's the motivation of my decision? Is the motivation of my decision a legalist breathing down my neck, and I have false guilt from a rule that's not of God, it's just simply something that either somebody else or I myself have brought into my Christian walk that's not of the Lord, or am I trying to find wiggle room to do something over here that may not be profitable or edifying? Read the rest of the verse with me. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things what? Not all things edify. The word edify means not all things build up. Now, the main thrust of the passage is probably about other people. It's a communal verse. It's about the community. But it also could be about you. There are certain things that you could be free to do, but you have to ask in the end, will it build me up or will it build others up or will it be profitable or not? Example. Let's talk about tobacco. All right? 
somebody's in a small group Bible study, Pastor, will smoking send you to hell? No, it won't. There's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot smoke cigarettes. If you know the verse, correct me. I, I haven't seen it. But there are verses about your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, etc. But we all know that when we start throwing that out, then every time you eat a piece of chocolate cake, somebody else is going to say to you, Hey, body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? One of those legalists is already, always over there. Is that real syrup you're putting on those pancakes? Is that bacon? <laughs> all right? So we have to be careful with our judgments. Confession. I was a baseball player in high school, so I started chewing tobacco. It's one of the grossest habits probably on the planet. Uh, those who chew tobacco, you may have noticed, I'm going to gross you out a little bit. You may not want to donut after this. They have spit cups. So they have the big wad between their... And then... Right? Now, as when I became a Christian, I had a number of issues. <laughs> you like how I put that? Issues. Right? Okay, so I carried them into my walk, and one after another, the Lord was removing them out of my life. Okay, that has to go, that has to go. One of the last things to go was chewing tobacco. I'd go out and play slow-pitch softball. A friend of mine would have a can of it, and I'd go, hey. Now, was that good for me? No. We know there's even dangers, right, associated with that. But was it going to impact my walk with Jesus Christ? Not necessarily. But here's a question I needed to ask. I needed to ask whether or not that was profitable. Whether or not that's something I should be doing. Now, that may be kind of a minor example, but you can see this area where we're, we're walking now. Maybe it's uh, you get invited to a movie with a friend and... Maybe you had planned on going to a Sunday night service and the movie's right at that time. A friend asks you to go to the movie. But let's say that that friend's a brand new Christian and the movie maybe is not the best movie for you to watch. Now you have to make a decision. Should you go? Should you not go? Now, I don't want to take this to a point where we are overanalyzing every single decision that we make. But you could apply it to, hey, uh, this Sunday we're going to go to the beach and skip church. Should you do that? No, you should never do that. <laughs> That's a joke. I'm kidding. <laughs> You're all like, oh, what did Pastor Mike say? I did that last weekend. <laughs> I know. I saw you there. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Here's the New Living Translation. You say, I'm not you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned 24 for your own good, but for the good of others. You see, when we are walking in the grace of God, we're going to be concerned about building up. What builds up? And there are certain things that could potentially be neutral, but there are other things, as Paul mentioned in an earlier text, that could tear other people down. And that's not what my Christian life's about. So let no one, 24, seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Now, the Bible is not saying that you shouldn't seek your own good in any situation because it's almost a given. 
We're to love others as we what? We love ourselves. The Bible already knows we love ourselves, so it doesn't need to explain the rest. The issue is whether we'll love others as we love ourselves. In Ephesians 5, husbands are told to nourish and cherish their wives just as they do their own bodies and as Christ does his own body. It's assumed that you will take care of yourself, hopefully, right? It's the natural human thing to do. The exhortation needs to be that we would do good to others as we would do to ourselves. That's what Jesus showed us, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so when we're making decisions, it's not about seeking our own good. It's that of our neighbor. You remember somebody asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Right? And then Jesus told the famous story of the Good Samaritan. And the legalist was trying to box Jesus in. Is my neighbor the one that lives just on the left and right hand of my house? Is that the only one I need to do good to? Look, if you're starting to parse things that way, you're in trouble. Because now you're just trying to find a way that you can, oh, so I just need to be nice to those two families, right? And the guy across the street, I could be mean to him and snarl at him. Why'd you park that out in front of my house? No, no, no. No, your neighbor is really anybody inside and outside the community. And as Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, remember the Samaritan was hated by the Jews, and he's the one that did the right thing. And I have to say that oftentimes even unbelievers can put us to shame doing acts of kindness that maybe we even fail to do. Later, Paul say, will, will say, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it's not boastful, it's not proud, it's n- love is not rude, love is not, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. As each one of you has received a special gift, 1 Peter 4, 10, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He goes on to say that God may be glorified. This is very important. Who's giving the glory in my service? Is it me? Is it God? Well, verse 25 is a practical example of the day. Paul says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market. Just imagine somebody going maybe to a local store in our day without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, here is a specific example because the talk had been about food sacrificed to idols. And Paul was saying, be careful. Don't go to the idol's temple and participate in the worship as they sacrifice meat to their gods and goddesses. But if you go into a meat market and let's say that you're going to buy some nice New York steak and it's on sale at the local store for $5.99 a pound. And you go, oh, perfect. I'm I'm barbecuing for Mama's Day. This is perfect. Mama liked this steak. Well, you don't say to the butcher, hey, uh, while you're getting that steak, was that sacrificed to Zeus anytime this week? <laughs> don't ask any questions. You say, well, what are you talking about, Pastor Michael? Well, in the ancient day, meat was a delicacy, so not everybody got to eat meat regularly. And secondly, sometimes meat was actually involved. The animal was sacrificed to a god, a false god or goddess. And then it ended up 
leftover meat was in the meat market, and it could have been involved in some sort of pagan thing, some sort of pagan ceremony. If you don't know as a Christian, look, uh, idols, nothing in the world. Meat is just meat. So if you don't ask any questions, your conscience doesn't need to be condemned, and you go on and you cook your steak. But if you say, did Zeus have any part in that? And the butcher says to you, lady, do you want the meat? Sir, do you want the meat or not? You ever had a butcher say that to you? Stop asking questions. But the minute that you know, Paul says, your conscience could be impacted. Here's how you qualify it. Meat is meat, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. That's Psalm 24, verse 1. God owns the cattle on a, thank you, on a thousand hills. And that's just a way to say everything in the world belongs to him. He owns all the cattle, even the ones that are saying, eat more chicken, eat more chicken. <laughs> he owns it all. Every beast of the forest is mine, Psalm 50, verse 10. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains, Psalm 50, 10 through 12. Example number two. If one of the unbelievers, somebody you're trying to reach, invites you, it would seem, to their house here, and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. You are not called to be a meat inspector. <laughs> so you go over to your friend's house, unbeliever. You're trying to win them to the Lord. You want to show them the grace of God, the glory of God. You walk in the door and you say, what, do, what are you serving tonight? And they say, steak. And you look at your spouse, should we ask him? Was Zeus involved? <laughs> right? <laughs> look, you're at their house. It's steak. Everything belongs to the Lord, right? That's probably going to lose you an opportunity to win them to Jesus. <laughs> Did you sacrifice this to Zeus? <laughs> right? You're trying to show them that Zeus is false and Jesus is true. So you go in there. Just don't ask any questions. Just eat what's put before you. There's a wide application to this, isn't there? It is very unwise to ask questions when food is put before you, especially if it's been cooked by a close family member. Don't ever say, what is this? It's a terrible career move, right? That's what manna means, by the way. What is it? That's what got the Israelites in trouble. What is it? <laughs> If anyone, though, is there, and some believe that this is the host, some believe it's another believer that's there. If anyone, say you're, you're at the table, should say to you, this meat was sacrificed to idols. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Now, there's a big debate about who's the one who informed you. Is it a Christian who found out some secret information about where the meat came from? I saw him in the store, right? Don't eat it. I don't think it's that because if it were that, why is that Christian at that meal to begin with? Right? Maybe it's the host who knows the Christians and, you know, their concerns and maybe he informs them so that they can be in the know. 
he might say something like this. You Christians don't eat meat involved in pagan sacrifice, right? Well, now you don't want to give the wrong impression. And so you will not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. You see, whatever we can't do from faith ends up being sin or it can stumble somebody. I know this is an ancient example, but you can probably think of some modern ways to walk this out. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Look, if I have, uh, and he's coming back to the point in verse 27. Let me read my notes. Now that Paul has hit on the wrong setting to partake, he now is returning to the thought of 1027 to explain why it is permissible to eat whatever is put before you at the home of an unbeliever. The legalist should have no say to say, why did you do that? Why were you there? When it comes to matters of conscience to reach people. Paul said in chapter 9, I've become all things to all men that by means of that I may win some of them. Jesus went into certain contexts, never justifying, of course, he would never tell a believer to go into a sinful situation or compromise but sometimes you're going to be in a situation where maybe what's going on around you is not honoring to the Lord, but you're there to be a light to those people. Amen? So Jesus was sometimes in places. This is the story of Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Come down from that tree. I must stay at your house. He hurried down, did the wee little man. And he received Jesus gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has, Jesus has gone into the get, as a guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said, Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to Save that which was lost. Pray tell, brothers and sisters, how are you going to bring the gospel to unbelievers unless you step into some arenas where they actually live? You're going to have to step out in some situations. Some years ago, there was a, a person who passed away, and I was asked to come as a pastor, and I entered into the home, and there, was, there were people in there drowning their so sorrows with alcohol, you know, just, just a bunch of chain smoking going on, down faces, no hope of the gospel, you know, alcohol, you name it. And nobody really wanted to talk to me. I felt a bit alienated as the Christian there in the room and the pastor. But they had asked for me to be there. And at one point, a little time had gone by, I, I said, Lord, what am I doing here? This is not my scene. This is, this is not me. What am I doing here? And the Lord spoke to me my heart and said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, Michael. It's the sick. Stay. And oftentimes I think as Christians, we've defined our lives in such a way, if we've been around the things of God and the church long enough, now it's all Christian friends and all this and all that. We have, we have no places where we even 
interact with unbelievers. How are we going to reach the lost if we don't talk to anybody who's lost? So as a Christian community, certainly we need to navigate these issues, right? Certainly we have to say, okay, this, this is a good situation. This is not so good. But the goal is to reach the world with the gospel, you guys. And if the legalist is breathing down the neck, they were there breathing down Jesus' neck. Why would you go into that house? Doesn't he know who that woman is? Yeah, he knows. That's why he's there. Because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. If we want to see our churches and country change, we're going to have to be salt and light in the world. We're going to have to move out of the church. We get This is a holy huddle, right? We come here, we get encouraged, and then we move out with the hope of the gospel. Thank you. (laughs) So whether you then, 31, whether then you eat or drink, here's a sweeping statement, or whatever you do, how should you do it? Do all, not some, do all to the glory of God. And the glory of God is the good of my neighbor. It's to love my neighbor. It's God's top two. It simplifies life. It's putting weight where God says, this is weighty to me. This is important to me. This glorifies me when you do this. When you choose to step out and you give your time when it's inconvenient and somebody else is hurting over here and you went and you did it to the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. You are doing God's will there. You sacrificed your time. You gave a chunk of your life over here because you knew there was a potential opportunity to reach someone who needs to see the light of Christ. You took a little extra time with the coworker. What's a neighbor on your street who maybe even annoys you? You decided that you're going to start praying for them instead of complaining about them. Maybe you'll bring them a plate of cookies and invite them to church instead of shaking your fist at them every time you pass by. (laughs) I'm going to give you a... (laughs) For some of you, that apparently was very personal. Anyway, I'll give you a... This is a Raul Reese story. He said uh, he was... er, I think it was fairly early in his pastorate. He he would go... Early in the morning, he he would pick up another young man and they would go off surfing. And there was this man, and he was always watering his lawn. And Rawl would come by in his car, and he would say, Slow down! And Rawl would say, I'm doing the speed limit, but this guy just felt compelled to yell at me. Slow down! Slow down! This was his famous line. So finally, Rawl said, I passed him, and he did it again. And I stopped, and I burned rubber all the way back to his house. Now, keep in mind, he's a 10th degree black belt, Rawl Reese. He said, I got out of the car, I got up in this guy's face, and I said, you're not God, and you're not my father. Don't you? And he said he was in this guy's face, ready to throw down, and he thought to himself, you know what? I'm a pastor. <laughs> what, what in the world am I doing? Can I, can I punch him to the glory of God? <laughs> Do you guys know that there is a story about Billy Graham that some, some guy came to his door and came up to the house of Billy Graham and began to yell at him, yeah, you're Billy Graham, you're not in the gospel. And Billy s- slugged the guy and knocked him to the ground, picked him up 
and led him to Jesus Christ. <laughs> that could be a plan for some of you. I, I don't know. Just don't quote me. That was Billy Graham, okay? Anyway. All right, we wind down. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks, to the church of God. You can see the whole world there. You have Jew, Gentile, and the church, right? It would seem to encompass the whole world. Clear out the way. Don't stumble anybody, right? Let's clear out the way so people can find hope in Christ. Just as I also, Paul uses his life as an example. He certainly was. I please all men in all things. He's not saying I please all men in that sense. But I do things so that I might reach them. I become all things to all men. Not by compromise in terms of doctrine, but by compromise in terms of some things that he may, as a Jewish man, feel are important, but he lays them aside to reach people. Never sinful, but you understand. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be what? That they may be saved. Can I ask you, when's the last time you preached the gospel to somebody who's not saved? And I'm saying that to myself. When's the last time your game plan for the day was, Lord, lead me to someone who needs to hear about the hope of Jesus? Aren't you glad someone prayed for you? Aren't you glad somebody stepped out and said, hey, there's a way. There's hope. And Paul closes with this verse that's familiar to a lot of us. He says, be imitators of me as I also imitate Christ. I want you to think about the evangelistic aspect of this verse. We've quoted it many times. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. But the verse before that was about saving the lost. And of, and of course, Paul was an incredible evangelist all over the Roman world at the sacrifice of his own health, his own well-being, he says, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's not about you, he might say to the Corinthians. It's not about your so-called liberty to do anything you want to do. It's about, hey, what's going to be profitable in light of the glory of God? Amen? Father, thank you so much that we have your word to navigate this world. It's uh, hard at times to know some of these boundaries and lines and what we should and shouldn't do. And we probably can think of a number of situations and applications where we have to wrestle with these things, but we don't, we don't want to make more of them than they are. But if we're going to default to anything, it's going to be for the glory of God and the good of my neighbor, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, Lord. Help us to be men who have, men and women who have your heart. Help us as a church, Lord, to think in these kinds of terms. There's a freedom in not being so self-consumed that every decision that you make during the day is about me, myself, and I. That, to me, is slavery. The person who is so self-consumed, they can't stop looking in the mirror. They can't stop think of, thinking about, how is this going to affect me? In the me generation that has certainly impacted all of us, Lord, if that is our life, it is a sad existence. But if we widen our gaze and we say, Lord, like Moses, show me your glory. 
Lord, I want to spend time with you so that when I come down from the mountain, when I, when I break the holy huddle, I can go out and do good. Do good to a neighbor. And oftentimes that good becomes a platform to the gospel. It becomes a means by which I've earned the right to be heard by this person because they see the love, your love in my life. And Lord, would you forgive me for the many times I have failed? I repent of that, Lord. The many times I've been self-centered and self-consumed. Lord, give us a heart like yours. Let us set aside the things that so easily entangle, the things that consume us, the idols that are often made in our own image. Let us cast those aside and pursue a relationship with the living God. Thank you that you first loved us. Thank you that you pursued us. You sought us out. And now you say, I want you to go on love with a mission. A mission of love to get the gospel out to this world. Lord, on this Mother's Day, I want to thank you that mothers really embody this text. They give and they give and they give some more. They do so much for the good of the family and the good of others. And I pray your blessing on moms. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Renew their strength. We celebrate them today. And we celebrate you for how you have loved us with an incredible love. Really, you've loved us with a mother's love. And we are grateful. Now, if you'd keep your head and heart bowed for a moment, can I ask you, do you know this love? It's a love that surpasses knowledge. It's a love that will change your life. It will change your priorities and your destiny. Do you open your heart today? If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the one who is love, you've heard the verses that God so loved the world that he gave his son, but maybe you don't know the son. Maybe you don't have life in him today. Something like this. Don't let this moment pass you by. Lord Jesus, would you pray it? Lord Jesus, save me. I've been living for myself for too long. I turn my life over to you. I repent of my sin. I receive what you did for me through the cross and the resurrection. I believe that you are God, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would you save me and change me from the inside out in Jesus' name? If you're a Christian and you've just gotten away and that glory seems like a distant thing to you, just spend a few moments in an attitude of worship and just say, Lord, I want to know your glory again. I, I want to know the power that I once did in my Christian life. I want to have that, that passion that flows from your presence and your power in my life. Do some business with the Lord before this service ends and just seek his face. He's so gracious to us, so good, so patient. He'll refresh you. He'll give you new vision, new passion, all that you need. In Jesus' name, amen.